What if your father died and made you the emperor and you had to use your own bloodletting power and your empire's traditional cult of human sacrifices to keep control of your son? That is, the son, S-U-N. Then you learn that the son is fading away and the gods might oppose your new marriage. That's the story of Lonnie Forbes' Mesoamerican-inspired fantasy novel, The Seventh Son. Lonnie has already appeared on our Fantastical Truth episode 71, and she rejoins us for the full episode today. Welcome anew to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, in which we find and explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond and we apply the meanings of these stories to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, and I publish lorehaven.com, edit the articles. I'm also the co-author of a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I get vasovagal reactions anytime I'm around blood, so I'm going to do my best to get through this, because this is episode 75, What If Only Human Blood and Sacrifice Could Save Your Empire?, We'll be talking about the novel The Seventh Son by Lonnie Forbes. I'm actually halfway through reading The Seventh Son now. I'd not even heard of this book until it was nominated for several awards at the Realm Makers Conference in July 2021, and it ended up winning three awards. We already had Lonnie, as I said, on episode 71 for a few minutes. Uh, She's here for the entire interview in just a moment. I just want to say, too, don't let the blood and the sacrifice deter you too much. I would not call this what some people would consider a clean read, but for mature readers who understand that Christian themes of sacrifice and power and abuse and tradition are stuff that we ought to explore for Christ's glory, uh, this uh, seems to be a fantastic book, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation with Lonnie. First off, we're going to stop by the concession stand for a few choice items real quick. Today's book, as I said, includes those elements, but even more challenging, The Seventh Son is set in a polytheistic world where it's assumed that somewhere out there are gods and goddesses. There's supernatural magic and all of that as well, but uh, readers may want to be aware that at least at first, uh, these are the traditions that are just assumed in this world. Uh, You might be thinking, well, is this, uh, is this really Christian fiction then? Well, at Lorehaven, we often use the name Christian for the author, not necessarily the story. But from my perspective, I believe that truly Christian authors make their stories Christian. Uh, the story becomes a representative of the author, a created image bearer, uh, just as God made people in his image. We make stories in our images, and therefore I think those stories will carry those Christian influences deeply in the world building, even if it's not obvious in the story itself. And I think that we can say that of The Seventh Son, and I think that you'll hear that in the interview with Lonnie in just a moment. Uh, That's why, as in other interviews with other authors, we start uh, by exploring our guest star's testimony. We always ask, how did you discover the gospel and how did you discover imagination? And usually for people we enjoy having on Fantastical Truth, it's one in the same testimony, not one leading to the other many years later. Finally, although we will go over the book's description in just a moment, uh, there's no way we're not going to mangle some of the Aztec-inspired name pronunciations. I just want to get that out of the way in case someone out there is a history buff. Well, we did get these pronunciations from Lonnie herself, but that doesn't mean that I, when I'm reading the description, uh, may not get something wrong. So let's move to our sponsor, uh, whose names are a little bit easier to pronounce. Uh, This, once again, is James R. Hannibal's suspense novel, The Paris Betrayal. From Revel Books, this is the description. After an intelligence operation in Rome goes sideways, Ben Calix returns to Paris to find his perfectly ordered world turned upside down. A hitman ambushes him at his flat. French SWAT tries to hem him in. This is a severance. The director has kicked him out into the cold, but why? To find answers, Ben must seek the sniper who tried to kill him, the spy master who trained him, the doctor who once saved his life, and the teammate who killed the woman he loved. And in the midst of this search, scouring Europe for his contacts, he must still try to stop a world-altering attack. That's the description, and here's an endorsement from the best-selling author of Hunt Them Down, Simon Gervais, who says, Hannibal once again displays his dazzling prose and ability to keep even the more experienced readers guessing. Another gripping, high-octane book from one of the best thriller writers in the business. That sounds amazing, and you can find out more about this book at our show notes, lorehaven.com slash podcast for episode 75. 
we will include the links uh, in those show notes for the Paris betrayal and for the episode of Fantastical Truth that featured James R. Hannibal talking about uh, fantasy and his game Dragon Raid, which is soon to become Light Raiders. So that's our sponsored book, and this is our featured book, The Seventh Son by Lonnie Forbes, a recently seen winning three awards at the Realm Makers Conference. Here's the book description. Thrust into leadership upon the death of his emperor father, young Prince Akin feels completely unready for his new position. Though his royal blood controls the power of the sun, he is now responsible for the lives of all the Chikome people. And despite all Akin's efforts, the sun is fading, and the end of the world may be at hand. For Mayana, the only daughter of the Chikome family whose blood controls the power of water, the old emperor's death may mean that she is next. Prince Akin must be married before he can ascend the throne, and Mayana is one of six noble daughters presented to him as a possible wife. Those who are not chosen will be sacrificed to the gods. Only one girl can become Akin's bride. Mayana and Akin feel an immediate connection, but the gods themselves may be against them. Both recognize that the ancient rites of blood that keep the gods appeased may be harming the Chikome more than they help. As a blood-red comet and the fading sun bring a growing sense of dread, only two young people may hope to change their world. Rich in imagination and romance, and based on the legends and history of the Aztec and Maya people, the seventh sun brings to vivid life a world on the edge of apocalyptic disaster. This is book one of the Age of the Seventh Sun series, and see the show notes for more links, including the story about Seventh Sun winning those awards at the Realm Awards for Best Christian-Made Fantasy in 2021. Well, that's about the book. Now, a little bit about the author, who as I see her on the horizon. She's approaching us on a zebra unicorn, which uh, I assume we'll get to know a little bit more about in a minute. But Lonnie Forbes is the award-winning YA author of The Seventh Son and the 2021 release, The Jade Bones. As the daughter of a librarian and an ex-drug smuggling surfer, which explains her passionate love of the ocean and books, Lonnie is a one-time teacher turned MFT student. Her passion is showing readers the transformative and encouraging power of story on the human experience. She helps others process anxiety, depression, and complex PTSD, both in her stories and in real life. A California native whose parents live in Mexico, Lonnie now resides in the Pacific Northwest with her husband and three young children. She is a proud nerd, stage four cancer warrior, and member of Romance Writers of America and the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Lonnie, welcome to Fantastical Truth. Why did you choose to ride a zebra unicorn at this time? Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. And I actually chose to ride a zebra unicorn because I have stage four neuroendocrine cancer, which is actually considered the zebra among horses of cancers. So I am proudly riding my zebra unicorn because I am the zebra unicorn of cancer patients. It's a very <laughs> rare species of cancer, the, the fantasy creature of cancer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> See, how is that going for you? I mean, we'll be asking about that a bit later, but uh, how is the, is the recovery, the treatment, how, how does that even work? It's, it's really been a shock because it was, it was so sudden and kind of a surprising diagnosis. I actually just gave birth to my son um, June 1st, so it was about two and a half months ago, and we had no idea I had cancer. And then in the hospital, actually, right the day after I gave birth, I started having some unusual symptoms. And they decided to run some tests, and it came back stage four neuroendocrine cancer that had spread to my spine, my liver, and my lung. And um, so it was just kind of a crazy, like, oh, here's a new baby. By the way, you also have stage four cancer. And wow. <laughs> it was a, a huge transition. Um, and so they immediately, like, days after I gave birth, they had placed my chemo port. I started doing chemotherapy. And so I've had about three rounds of chemotherapy so far. I start my fourth round next week, and I, I feel like I've been really fortunate in that I think just being young and healthy so far anyway, I've been handling the chemo really well. Um, I've lost my hair, but other than that, I've been, had good energy. I haven't been too sick, um, other than just being exhausted from trying to stay up with a newborn baby. So, <laughs> so The Seventh Sun has so much exploration. I'm about a third or half of the way through so far, and has so much exploration of suffering and threats to your life. And as we mentioned in your bio, you help others process anxiety, depression, and complex PTSD. Well, now you're living through some of that. And by the way, during an ongoing pandemic besides. Yeah, it, it definitely adds a whole nother layer of the uh, of being safe with your um, immune system, um, which 
yeah, I, I understand, you know, I have to definitely wear a mask and that kind of stuff just because my immune system is now a lot more compromised than mm-hmm. it was beforehand. Mm-hmm. And so trying to navigate a pandemic while you're immunocompromised just adds this like whole other layer of, of, I don't know, it's stress to it, I think. <laughs> well, now you're also spending far more time in the, uh, the age of the seventh sun series. I'm curious, as we always ask our guests on the podcast, how did you discover biblical faith and fantastic imagination? Well, for me, the two have kind of always gone hand in hand. And I don't know if that's just because I always loved, I've always loved fantasy in general. Um, I think I was first introduced to, to reading and fantasy with the Harry Potter series. And I just always loved how she used the idea of love and self-sacrifice and how you can communicate some really beautiful truths through fiction. And a lot of my favorite Bible stories are the parables. And so I just, I believe Jesus taught through story and it's such an effective way to teach because it allows you to bring your listeners in with emotion and they get to experience. And just, I'm a firm believer that like when you listen and hear a story, you experience the story as a participant instead of just an observer. And so I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus taught with story. And so for me, I just, I learn lessons through stories so much more effectively. And so it just naturally seems like a beautiful way to convey spiritual truths. And especially when you get to bring in the fantastical, it just, it, it makes things a lot more exciting. It makes things a lot more interesting and emotional. And I just think it's a beautiful way to convey truth. So what's your favorite parable? Um, I don't know. I, I love the parable of the talents, the hidden talents, um, and just the idea of, taking what God has given you and, and not wasting it, you know, making sure that you use it in a way that is honoring to him. And so for me, that's, that one's probably my favorite. I just realized no one's ever asked me my favorite parable. Do I have a favorite? I don't know. It's, it's Jesus parables. Like he doesn't pick favorites or does he, (laughs) I I suppose the one that immediately comes to mind is the one with the rich man and Lazarus, just because there is some afterlife in there. And it's the only parable with a named character, which always struck me as very interesting. I think I like the parable of the seed, you know, that the, the farmer sows. And actually, I remember hearing this talk where a guy was like, this farmer is kind of an idiot. I mean, who puts a seed on a sidewalk or among thorns? Like, what, what's the deal with that? <laughs> like, there's just kind of some funny aspects to it. Like, Jesus was obviously telling a little bit of a joke here, but how much that relates to our lives is, is where we are putting God's word and in, in whether or not God's word is making a difference in our life and bearing fruit, it's just I think about that all the time. So I just realized something else. We are now three quarters of the way to 100 episodes of Fantastical Truth. And Zach, to your memory, can you remember anybody saying, well, first I became a Christian and then later on in life, I got the second blessing, like an extra movement of the Holy Spirit when I discovered that fantasy was cool. It seems that most of the authors to whom we speak are saying what Lonnie just said, uh, that they always grew up thinking they were one and the same, you know, this fantastic imagination and uh, and faith in the biblical gospel. Yeah, I think I think it's right. Um, it is a it is a striking um, similarity that a lot of authors have is that it's just always kind of been natural to enjoy these stories. Lonnie, can you remember the first fantasy story you read? Like the first novel, I, sh- I should say that you read. It would actually definitely be the Harry Potter series. Um, okay. Before that, I wasn't a huge reader, actually. I wasn't super into reading. I wasn't into um, fantasy as much. And my mom introduced me to the Harry Potter series. I think it was in seventh grade, and I had to do a book report. And she had, she, my mom was, is a librarian, so she's always loved books and loved reading, and she could never get me into it. And so she handed me the Harry Potter book that I had to take to school with me. And I started reading it in class, and it was, well, that was the end of it. <laughs> So, so even having to do a book report didn't uh, turn you off to reading because that's what I, I I do encounter a lot of people like that. They're like, oh, I had to do all these book reports and oh, I just hate reading now. So well, I, I was surprised, <laughs> I think, because I had never really been super into reading, but I had never really tried reading fantasy before. Like everyone tried to get me to read the Babysitter's Club or, you know, all those books that supposedly young girls are supposed to like. And I read Harry Potter and just this idea of being swept up into this other world. And um, at the time, I think I, I mentioned a little bit in my bio that I grew up with like, um, and, and and especially I mentioned how I work a lot with like anxiety and PTSD and that kind of stuff. I, my, my real dad was um, a drug addict and alcoholic. And so we grew up with a lot of um, in and out of battered women's shelters, in and out of courthouses. We had a lot of stress and anxiety in my home growing up. And so for me, 
when I started reading the Harry Potter series, I just really related to Harry wanting to kind of escape his real world and go into this mystical, magical place where you could be a hero and there could be exciting adventures. And I just, I think I just really latched onto that. And it really kind of helped take me out of the stress and anxiety of the real world that I was in and took me to this place where I could just escape for a little while. And I think that just really got a hold of me. And I ended up just becoming obsessed with the Harry Potter series where I would just read the series over and over and over again. And that, that really started my obsession with fantasy, I think. (laughs) Yeah. And we've talked about that whole idea of escape, you know, is is escape through fiction, a healthy thing. And is it Tolkien, I think that has said, well, yeah, if you're escaping prison, (laughs) you should. Yes, exactly. Getting out into the real world. Yeah. But I, I totally resonate with you just personally that like, why would I read a book about just normal, boring, everyday kind of things? Like, I had to read a lot of books in high school English that were just like, I, I don't even know the point of those books. It was like, yeah. it's just normal, everyday, boring things. And I'm like, I, I want to read a book with dragons or spaceships or just something awesome, even something historical, like something just totally out of the ordinary. Uh, because if it's just an ordinary story, I can go live that. <laughs> like, I can just go exactly. do something in these stories. But I, so I've always loved the fantastical genre. Because you can't actually go experience that in life. Well, at least not yet. Uh, Some people, (laughs) of course, use uh, fantasy books as an unhealthy escape uh, in order to distract from their problems. In your case, with your emphasis on healing from anxiety and depression and going through this suffering, it sounds to me like books like the Harry Potter series and other fantastic works have helped you confront those realities, have helped you return to the real world uh, armed with strategies in the gospel uh, to help combat those sufferings. Exactly. And I think just like any coping mechanism, you can take it too far. And I think, you know, making sure that if you're using books as an escape, that it's that you do have to come back to the real world at some point. And for me, the lessons that you learn and that you take from these stories, especially because when you think about like the hero's journey, it's it's about learning to face difficult problems. And that's what fiction is all about, is it's about a character facing a problem or facing a difficulty and learning the character strength and, you know, the tools and the resources to overcome whatever their problem is. And so then if you can take that from the story and then take it to your real life of, you know what, I can have the courage to face whatever problem I'm facing, whether it's cancer or whether it's, you know, a a difficult work situation, or I can have the bravery and strength because I watched this character find the strength and courage to do it too. So I can take that and I can find that as well. And so for me, I, I just love learning from the characters in stories and seeing their grit and their ability to face their problems and mm. deal with it. And it, it, I don't know, it encourages me to then take it in, into my real life and do the same thing. Clearly, you have been participating in some anti-cancer rituals, uh, but it sounds like after reading the Harry Potter series, you did not get pulled into uh, some of the concerns that Christians have had since the series started coming out about uh, getting into paganism or anything like that. Uh, do you have a quick word about that before we move on into the world of the seventh son? Well, one of the interesting things about the Harry Potter series is I feel like if you look at the overall theme of it, it's it's the theme of love and self-sacrifice. And it's the mm. idea that like Harry's mother loved him enough to die for him. And it was that love that protected him. And, you know, so much of the series is about Harry's acceptance of death and him not being afraid of death. Whereas Voldemort, you know, he's the bad guy that's trying to escape death by trying to control it. And Harry's willing to embrace it and die for the people that he loves at the very end. And that's kind of, to me, a very Christian concept that the idea Mm -hmm. that true love is, and and that segues into the Seventh Son series, that true love, the epitome of true love is self-sacrifice, being willing to die for the ones that you love. And who better demonstrated that for us than Christ? I mean, that's, to me, a very Christian concept. And I loved how she even incorporated some Bible verses into like the very last, you know, the last book. She talks about where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And I loved her use of Dementors as a personification of depression and how, um, and so for me, I actually have a Harry Potter tattoo on my back because I I love that is, I, I just, as someone who struggled with depression myself, I loved her personification of the Dementors and how you have to hold on to positive memories and these happy things in order to be able to fight the depression. And I just, there's so much in the series that I think is so beautiful. And yes, there's some paganism, witchcraft kind of stuff, but I feel like that's more of a, in the same way that with my seventh son series, I feel like it's more of a tool to kind of 
I don't know, set the scene and create like the magic system. But I don't feel like that's the point of the story. I feel like the point of the story truly is about the idea of the ultimate expression of love is self-sacrifice. Exactly. And that's how I read the series when I was first discovering it. Uh, All of the uh, witchcraft ideas, the magic system uh, seemed to me to be secondary to the meta theme of the book series, especially by the book's end. Uh, And I I think if any Christian reader wants to engage with this series, despite some of the rumors they've heard about it, uh, I I think that that's what they would find if they get the right training uh, to read it rightly. I mean, it doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be a literature class. Uh, but you do need some training as to why God forbids certain kinds of paganism to be practiced in real life. Uh, that is not the sort of thing Christians ought to be doing. Deuteronomy 18 forbids trying to use these techniques to control your world or guarantee a positive future. Uh, but you can engage a fiction series that goes into uh, some of the trappings of these ideas. But the meta theme of the series is not control your world through magic. Uh, The meta theme is surrender yourself and be willing to suffer and die for your friends or even to help save your enemies. Uh, Love your enemies and deal with suffering is one of the big themes of the Harry Potter series, Uh, just as it is, I see, uh, with uh, with the seventh son, which leads us into our second question about uh, what expressions of truth, goodness and beauties uh, led you into creating this story uh, inspired by but not directly uh, all about uh, the ancient Aztec empires uh, in this uh, different realm. Yeah, so for me, I, I really wanted this series to kind of be an exploration of, I don't know, wrestling with faith um, for me especially because it's it's a teen fiction. And for me as a teenager, I, I was always the kind of Christian that loved to ask questions. Like I wanted to know you know, how do we know that the 12 disciples didn't just make this story up? And, you know, I I was constantly asking questions and I loved reading the case for Christ. And, you know, I just, I always wanted to understand and ask questions and just have a deeper understanding of why I believe what I believe. And what about this? And what about that? And, and sometimes people don't like when you ask a lot of questions, but I, for me and my faith, I, I needed to, and that was part of, I needed to wrestle with things and I needed to understand things. And that was a huge part of my spiritual development as a teenager. And so for me, I really wanted to kind of capture that, um, which I think, you know, and and even like I said, this book series is not necessarily written to be a Christian book series, but I think that that theme of, of wrestling with what you believe is something that can be applicable to, you know, anyone who's trying to figure out what they believe about things. And for me, you know, that I, I settled on, I, it strengthened my Christian faith when I came out of my own spiritual wrestlings. And I really wanted to capture that in the series of my main character is seeing this this religious system that's that's in place and she's asking questions of why why do we do these things and I want to understand where this comes from and why do I have to do it this way and um you know I think a huge theme in young people nowadays is this whole idea of deconstruction and deconstructing your faith and understanding what's going on with what is cultural versus what is biblical. And, you know, I wanted to kind of wrestle with that idea, but at the same time say that you can wrestle with deconstructing certain things or trying to understand what's cultural or what was created by the church. But that doesn't mean you have to give up your faith entirely. You can still come out of that wrestling, having a strong faith. And so that's something that I wanted to really explore in this series for sure. That is so awesome. Um, and I love that in your own journey, your asking questions led you to books like The Case for Christ, where you were trying to actually find answers to those questions. Whereas I, the, the whole deconstruction culture, a very popular author who we won't get into, it is uh, just launched and then pulled a deconstruction course for the low, low price of uh, $275. And, you know, he, he talks about this deconstruction community. I'm like, there's a community built around this? There's this, a community this, for everything. Oh, yeah. now. This is, uh, this almost sounds like a church, you know, that's kind of interesting. But your own journey, you were trying to find answers. Whereas I think for a lot of people, they ask questions and they don't think there's answers or they don't want the answers or they don't like the answers. And, you know, there always comes that point where it's like, well, here's the answer, whether you like the answer will you surrender to, to Christ, even if you don't like the answer? And I, I think of so many different encounters Christ had where it went either way. You know, there was the, the, there was the man, the, the rich man who said, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus walks into the commandments and says, well, okay, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And the man went away. He's like, nope, not going to do that. And the other man that was like, well, uh, I got to go bury my father. 
And Jesus said, well, let the dead bury their own dead. You know, so sometimes he gave very hard answers. Yeah. But then, but then there were times, and then especially when he preached about, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. And whoa, that's a big showstopper there. And a lot of people walked away from that answer. But then he looked at Peter and said, are you going to leave also? And Peter says, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And I, I think that that's always the point we have to come to of like, I may not like this answer or totally understand this answer, but where else am I going to go? And that's kind of what has been true in my own journey. There's been a lot of things I, I still don't have answers to that I've questions I've asked my entire Christian life. But I'm like, well, where else am I going to get an answer to this? Like, am, am I just going to get an answer from the culture or from this deconstruction community? Like, that, that's not where you're going to find it. And, but, but I love how, you know, all throughout Scripture, you see this compassion Jesus has for people that ask questions like Thomas. You know, doubting, yeah. we, we always call him doubting Thomas. But Jesus like, look, like, look at my hands and feel my scars and into the the man who had the son that was uh, demon possessed or sick, and the man says, "I believe, but help me help, with my my, help my unbelief." And Jesus always answered that question. He always helped people in their faith. And so, where where have you seen that in your life? Where have you seen that in others' lives? Or how do you portray that in this story? It feels like the theme and story of my life is I very much relate to the, to doubting Thomas and the questioning, and I just feel like my faith journey has been a series of wrestling with questions and trying to find answers. And, and yeah, a lot of times the answers are, are really difficult. And, you know, especially even with my recent cancer diagnosis, I really wrestled. And there was that first month where I felt like I was like, God, why? <laughs> and trying to understand, like, I just have this new, new baby and I have two other young children and I'm a young mom. And, you know, our family has been through so much with my husband struggling with addiction and having to go away for a year. And I was a single mom for years. I was writing book two of the series and just feeling like I had been through so much suffering already. And then we got pregnant with my third son and we were so excited. Like this felt like redemption of like, okay, God, this is going to be this beautiful kind of bow on the top of this really hard story that our family has gone through through the last three years. And it just felt like, okay, yay, this is this beautiful redemption. And then the doctor walks in and goes, oh, by the way, we found a mass on your lung and your liver. And it was just like, my gosh, what? <laughs> and it just that that immediately I, I went into a really deep wrestling of, you know, like, God, I don't understand. You know, I thought you promised things, you know, after you go through suffering that things turn out OK. I, I don't understand. And so but but my personality is if i start wrestling with something i immediately have to dive in and and wrestle with it and so i started reading books i sat down and met with our pastor i got to go to realm makers and i have been wrestling for the last you know 2 months really with a lot of these things and what's amazing to me is that in my experience of my whole life of wrestling with difficult questions and it feels like a lot of my questions always have to do with suffering as <laughs> as as i've gone through my life and i feel like god is kind of taught me different lessons at each stage in my life. And I realized how much he's been teaching me just even in the last two months of, um, I started reading a really good book by Kate Bowler called, um, everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. <laughs> and she was diagnosed with cancer at age 34. And she's a, a professor at Duke divinity school. And she talks about just this idea of prosperity gospel. And can we still have faith when things don't turn out the way that they, we think they should. And in the midst of suffering, how do we still hold on to faith? And so I've been wrestling with that and even meeting with my pastor. And we actually had a really great conversation. You mentioned the parable of the uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And he and I had a great conversation about that because I have a lot of questions now about the afterlife. Like my cancer diagnosis is, is not a very positive one. And so I have a lot of questions now of stuff I want to ask about that. And so a lot of my own wrestling has been has been a lot of that. And it's always amazing to me that I feel like when I do have the courage to dive in and search and look for answers, God has never let me down. And he has always helped me. I may not like the answers, <laughs> but I have always found answers that I can at least find a peace with. I can honestly say I'm to the point where I have reached this place of peace with my cancer diagnosis that I never thought I could reach. And I don't know how to explain it other than God's supernatural peace. No, that is that is epic to hear. Um, Zach and I did a podcast episode, I think, back in uh, March after uh, one of his best friends died, and uh, and my father died as well. Back in March, we did an episode about how stories can help us 
deal with this suffering. You know, stories, of course, being secondary to God's word and the gospel, uh, but still uh, quite the harmonious uh, backup vocal in accordance with God's word, of course. You mentioned earlier, uh, Lonnie, that uh, you weren't sure if your story was a, a, a Christian book. I mean, and although it may not align with some people's expectations of like a clean story or an obviously evangelical story, uh, that goes back to what you said about proper deconstruction. You're not hacking away at the foundation of the faith if you are deconstructing rightly. You are getting rid of uh, uh, some of the, uh, the bad construction on top of that. Uh, the foundation of the gospel should still be there. And I see that foundation in your novel, in The Seventh Son. It is deep in there, in the themes of power through bloodletting and sacrifice and just the deep humanity of these characters, uh, but also the darkness in which they're lost. Like, this is not a pre-cleaned G or PG-rated world uh, where somebody just needs to let go and let God and then everything will be okay now or in the future, which is what some people expect of a Christian book. Uh, this is a world much like our own. People will kill their children, and it's just assumed that this is okay. Uh, one of the moments that this hit me is when, I won't give the spoilers, but there is one person who dies, and then another person who voluntarily dies in order to be with him in this afterlife. Uh, and then everyone else around them is discussing, you know, we should also sacrifice a servant to help them out in their journey in the underworld. And I just kind of sit there in shock and go, wow, the casualness of just, yeah, we'll just, we'll sacrifice a servant as well. And yet these people are not horrible villains. Uh, this no. is just assumed in the world, uh, just as it would have been assumed in any other culture uh, that had perverted the biblical ideal of sacrifice. I kept thinking also of the book of Leviticus, in which God specifically forbids human sacrifice. That is not a thing that his old covenant people were going to do. But, oh, there were so many animal sacrifices and sacrifices of time and sacrifices of money and so many bulls and rams and everything else. If you sin, you die. If you sin, you die. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, it's this idea that God plants early in his gospel narrative. If you sin, something has to die or else you have to die. And then it finds the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But until then, you had an entire culture. Uh, sacrificing in the right way, uh, hopefully understanding God in the right way, that if you sin, something has to die. Blood must be shed in order to pay for that sin in some way. So you see a little of that reflected uh, in, uh, in the culture of your world, uh, but what do you think are the differences between uh, the original good idea of sacrifice, fulfilled in Christ, thank God, uh, but then this, this alternate idea of sacrifice? It's so interesting because I was, as I was studying like where the ancient Aztec ideas and the ancient Mesoamerican ideas of bloody lighting came from, it was fascinating to me to see how closely related to, like I said, like, yeah, maybe some ancient Jew Jewish practices or some ancient, you know, it, it was fascinating to me to see that crossover of how just this idea of repaying debt and how that theme of repaying debt was kind of throughout all you know, a lot of different cultures that did sacrifice. And, and it was this idea of like, yeah, petitioning, but also, I don't know, just, I loved that idea of, um, they believed that the gods had sacrificed themselves in order to create humanity and save humanity. And so for them, blood sacrifice, human sacrifice, it was repaying this debt. And so just for me, that language is, as I was studying it naturally as a Christian, I, you know, I relate that to our Christian idea of the debt has already been paid. And so I just, I really latched on to that idea as I was writing. And I just really wanted to convey that idea of truth of like, when you think of what true love is, true love is self-sacrificial without expectant, expectancy of payment in return. And to me, that is, that is something that is Christian, but it's also universal and that, yeah, true self-sacrificing love does not expect payment in return. And I just, as I was writing, I kept coming back to that and I kept holding on to that. And so for me, that's what I really wanted my main character to to kind of wrestle with is this idea of for her in the story, her mother showed her the idea of self-sacrificial love, not expecting payment in return. And so she wrestles with this idea of like, if the gods really loved us enough to die for us, why would they expect payment in return? That's not what love looks like. And so even though it's not, you know, Christianity and Christ, she still has that that fundamental understanding of, you know, what true how love should work. How, yeah. how how love should work, regardless. Um, that that love does not expect payment in return. And so I just, I really wanted to hone in on that in the story. 
Yeah, that, that reminds me of um, books I've read like Eternity in Their Hearts or uh, Peace Child, how God puts this idea of how the relationship between man and God should work in, in people's hearts, sometimes before the gospel ever reaches them. And um, th- there's this famous tribe he talks about where there were these two warring tribes, and, and it was just this cycle of revenge and violence. It's very similar to what Jim and Elizabeth Elliot encountered in South America. Don Richardson talks about this idea in, the, in these, this tribal society that if you gave your firstborn son to another tribe to raise as their own, it would bring peace between the tribes. And so they called it a peace child. Wow. And and this was like the key that unlocked their understanding of the gospel and just saying Jesus is the peace child for all of humanity. And and that was that was it. And it's like how did they already have this idea, you know, that, that this is how it should work. And I think it's just what it says in Acts that he has not left himself without witness. And so that sounds like kind of what you're doing in the story here is that you're showing how God does put these ideas in our hearts because of the culture we're in, or even despite the culture we're in, uh, because it says he's not far from each one of us. He's determined the times and places that we should live. And so it sounds like kind of what you're, what you're doing is like showing how, you know, the questions they're asking, the answers they're either getting or not getting are sort of, they're kind of running up against this wall of like, there should be something different or there should be something more. And I think that is a very Christian approach to to showing how the gospel is the answer, but it's, it's sort of like you have to kind of put the book down for a second and go, wait a minute, <laughs> I know the answer to this. They may not have figured it out, but I know what the answer is to this. Exactly. And that, that was definitely my intent with it. And the idea that like, yeah, you can have, you can have an idea. I believe that God can put that idea of truth in our hearts, you know, regardless of where we are, where we live, what time period, everything. Mm-hmm. Well, and that marks the difference between a a book like this and propaganda. After an article in Lorehaven, a bunch of our readers have been talking about like how we understand, well, what is the difference between a great story and just propaganda? And I thought about it and I realized like in this case, the difference is the book is trying to ask you, gentle reader, what would you do, gentle reader? Um, A better book is asking, what will these characters do? Because these characters are not the same as the reader. The reader is not the focus. The story is not about the reader specifically. It will relate to them. But a good story is going to be about these characters. It's going to be about Mayana. It's going to be about Akin. What are they going to do as they're sorting through these issues? That's what I'm wondering as I'm reading The Seventh Son. Yeah, and, and Mayana's big struggle through the whole first book is, you know, she has this inkling that something isn't right here. Like, I'm, I'm wrestling with what, what, you know, culturally they're telling me I have to do and I have to believe in and, you know, I have to follow these rules that, you know, society tells me I have to. And she's wrestling with that. And she's like, I just don't know, do I believe at this? Do I? And, you know, and that's, that's something that I've wrestled with, especially in, in the Christian church, because I grew up in the 90s. I grew up in the whole purity culture stuff where there was a lot of prosperity gospel kind of stuff that I am finding that I'm having to deconstruct a lot of this idea of the prosperity gospel, this idea that like I'd been taught that if you do the right things, God will bless you with health and wealth. And, you know, and, and that's not at all what the gospel promises. Amen. <laughs> In fact, we're, we're kind of promised that we will suffer and we will have hard times and having to deconstruct that I had really bought into this idea that like, if I do the right things, my life will turn out great. And then when it doesn't, it's like, oh my gosh, I have to wrestle with this and figure out, you know, because I, I, I do believe that there are things that the American church has taught us that that do need to be deconstructed and yeah. that do need to be taken apart and and that have come from our culture, not from the gospel. And so Mayana has to wrestle with that, that there are aspects of, you know, that have come from the culture that are not necessarily, you know, what she wants to believe or that she needs to believe. And so she has to wrestle with that and she has to decide by the end of the story Am I willing to stand up for that despite the consequences? Because there are going to be some very severe consequences if she stands up for the truth of what she believes. And she has to really wrestle with that. And then, and I don't want to give much away, but like, and then in book two, when things don't go the way that she expects, she has to literally wrestle through, you know, trusting, is there a bigger purpose to this? And a lot of what she wrestles with in book two is what I was wrestling with while my husband was in um, treatment for a year and I was a single mom. And so I was wrestling, like, I don't understand the plan. I don't understand. 
what's going on? Where are you, God? And that's a lot of what Mayana wrestles with through book two. And I was wrestling with that as I was writing book two. And so just so much of, of her spiritual journey is a lot of what my own was in book one and in book two. And Akeen's is the total opposite of where he had totally put all of his faith and, and, and hope in these rules and rituals, which I, I kind of look at him as very legalistic where he like kind of the idea of the, the Jewish Pharisees where he put his faith in like following the rules instead of, you know, following actually his heart and, and what, the truth of what the rules are supposed to represent behind it. And he had put all of his faith in the rules because that's what let him feel like he has control. And so he has a very different spiritual journey, but there's very much a spiritual journey for both of them throughout both books. I love how you said that you were, you had to deconstruct uh, a cultural false gospel. You were deconstructing the prosperity gospel. As you said, you're not deconstructing the gospel. Yeah. You're you're getting stuff out of the way that's kind of crowded its way in, and it's very much like the Galatian church, you know, that they got this idea that oh, I need the gospel and circumcision, you know, or like you said, you you need the gospel and following all of the rules uh, to get what I want because that's what God promised me. And it's like, wait a minute, no, He didn't. <laughs> Actually, Jesus said, "In this world, you will have trouble." That's what He promised us. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And Lonnie, I totally see that in you, that, you know, you're, you're obviously going through a lot of trouble, but I, I can see the light of Christ shining in you because you, you see that there is something greater than what you go through in this world, that, that there is a future and a hope and there is our resurrection. And like you said, you're, you're even asking questions about that, which is great, but that, that is where our questions should lead us. They should lead us to the gospel. And it, um, I love that that has been your journey. That's really encouraging to hear all that. Well, I think it, it breaks my heart a little bit to see so much of this deconstruction stuff going on and, and realizing that I feel like a lot of the push to deconstruct stuff that we see, I think, comes from a lot of trauma that is caused by the church, unfortunately. But but the trauma that I see being caused is caused by this extra stuff that we've added in that that wasn't supposed to be there and isn't the gospel. And it is doing a lot of damage and it is hurting a lot of people. And it's it's sad, but I, it breaks my heart to see people kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater of, you know, we need to deconstruct all this extra stuff that we've tried to add on to the gospel that is not the heart of the gospel. And we don't need to throw out the gospel at the heart of it. And that's really what Mayana, especially, I think, in, you know, book three hasn't come out yet, but book three ends up dealing a lot with her wrestling against the establishment. And, and what I kind of conceptualize to be is this like cultural representation of what the church in that corrupted sense has been um, almost in like a reformation Martin Luther esque type way. And she has to really face that of like, how do you stand up against a corrupted version of the church and still not let go of your faith in that? And um, that's a lot of what she's going to wrestle with in book three. Amen. Wow. I'm really looking forward to book three even more than I already was. And I'm glad you cited the reformation as a positive template for the kind of deconstruction we do need. As I recall my history, Martin Luther did not want to create the Lutherans or the Protestants. He wanted to reform the church. Uh, history obviously had another direction in mind. And by history, I mean God. Providentially, whatever you think about all of that, uh, that is what ended up happening. Um, I also think of Jesus himself and his conversations with the Pharisees. Like People in the deconstruction community, uh, not only do they need to read better books, including, I would wager, this one, uh, your series, uh, but also they need to look to Jesus, who did a plenty of deconstruction on his own in those Pharisee conversations. Jesus is asking, ye have heard it said, dot, dot, dot. And he starts talking about uh, the fake rule that people have made, the fence around the fence. And then Christ says, but I say to you. And then he goes back to not only God's law, but the heart of the law. He's pointing to the point of the law. And ultimately, of course, he is beckoning to himself as the fulfillment of the law. But if you start focusing not just on the rules, but on your rules around the rules, and then the rules around the rules around the rules, ruleception, you're going to miss the focus of the law in the first place, which lets you know if you sin, something has to die. If you sin, something has to die, and then ultimately points you toward Jesus. Well, and as humans, we tend to we tend to cling to those rules because they they give us power, they give us a sense of control, and and at the end, though, it turns into a works based righteousness, which. In my opinion, that's what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is that we are not a works-based righteousness. It's yeah, not right. about what you do. 
And, you know, that's what we turn it into when we make it about the rules. And that's unfortunate because like I said, that's, that's not the heart at all of what the gospel is supposed to be. Oh, amen. And you will double down on the problem by coming up with new rules to get rid of the old rules, which we see a lot, especially in the political context. Well, we don't like this tradition over here. So let's come up with that tradition over there, which isn't the old terrible tradition. It's a completely different legalistic tradition. You've just reversed the polarity there of your cultural fundamentalism. And then the next generation will probably do the same. And then on and on we go, missing the point of any of God's law in the process. But circling back, uh, Lonnie, to uh, your series, uh, despite the suffering, you know, the, the microcosm reenactment of the book of Job that you seem to be going through here, uh, <laughs> you have gotten some awards for this book. Like, I'm sure that was a very positive experience at Realm Makers, uh, getting the awards for best debut, best, uh, what is it, best uh, young adult and best uh, epic fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's for The Seventh Son. And then the sequel book to The Jade Bones came out this year. Uh, you've got mm -hmm. book three to round off the trilogy. Uh, what is that called? And then what is next in your creative endeavors? Um, so book three is going to be called The Obsidian Butterfly, which I'm wow. really, really excited about. And if you've read book two, you'll have an idea of why it's called The Obsidian Butterfly. Um, but book three is probably my favorite of the series. Like I said, it has a very kind of Reformation-esque theme to it of um, fighting against yeah a corrupted system. and how do you, you know, do you stay and try to fight and change it? Or do you just cut and run and, you know, not deal with it? And that's, that's really what Mayana's ultimate battle is going to be in book three is what is she going to do with, with now that she's armed with this knowledge? How does she then go back into a world that doesn't want to listen to her or listen to Akin? Or it's a battle and I'm really excited for where, where it turns out. And there's a lot of exciting stuff that happens with that too. Um, so book three will come out in uh, February of 2022. Um, I'm waiting to see the cover like any day now. My um, publisher's a little bit behind in production with the book that came right before mine. So I'm like checking my email every day to see the cover. I can't wait to see the cover. And then um, once that's finished, I actually have a different fantasy that I'm almost finished with. I had um, was trying to get it finished before I had the baby and then having the baby and the cancer, it's kind of slowed me down a little bit, but I'm about 75% of the way finished with it. And my publisher's already um, expressed interest in it. And it's a it's a standalone fantasy, but it's based off kind of like a mission era California Western, but it's a fantasy world inspired by like kind of a Western world. So it's, it's a fantasy world, but a Western fantasy world. And so it's, and it really explores the idea of um, running from our past and, and learning to forgive ourselves from things in our past. And I'm really excited for that one. Once that one, hopefully we'll get a book deal once I finish it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Yeah, you know, we I, we just finished watching The Chosen uh, season two in our family, and that yeah. was a big theme with Mary Magdalene of how she wanders away. She hits these questions she can't find answers to and just decides, I'm, I'm out of here. And then she's brought back by others, uh, by the other disciples. And then, you know, she's still trying to find her footing, feeling very embarrassed and very shamed. And so I, I think that's such a great theme. As we talked about this whole deconstruction narrative, it's all about people walking away and then just kind of wandering aimlessly. But I think really what you're talking about, what, what this whole theme is about is reconstruction. You know, you, you mentioned the Reformation. You know, we are rebuilding our faith and clearing out those thorns, clearing out those rocks that get in the way of the seed being planted in good soil and bearing fruit. And so um, I love that you were pointing readers towards that because it's like, hey, we don't have to get so hung up on questions and doubts and struggles and true suffering. Like that doesn't have to be the end of our faith um, or even the confusion that we've had from, like you said, these other gospels that have kind of snuck in. There is a real gospel with real power to change our lives. We don't need to find that power through fake rules and through a sense of control we get over God somehow. But he is a real God with real power and he gives that that power to to us through the resurrection, through the real gospel. And so I love all the ways that you are you are creating stories to point to that reality. I think it takes more courage to to reconstruct. You know, I think I think it's easier to just walk away and just look at this and be like, you know what, well this hurt me and I've been, you know, hurt and and confused and and there's so much corruption and stuff here that I just I I, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm just gonna walk away. And I think it takes a lot more courage and it's a lot harder to to turn around and look at okay no there's there is some things here that have hurt me but I'm going to 
figure those out and I want to work through those and I want to find the stuff that is good still and, and push through my pain and my trauma that might have been caused to still find the truth. And I think that requires a lot of bravery. And um, I really admire the people that are able to do that because it, it is hard and it's scary and it's painful, but I think it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> it's Amen. worth it. Amen. Jesus says in John 10, I'll just quote briefly, starting in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I'm going to pause and insert in under destroy, deconstruct. It doesn't mean deconstruct in a healthy way. It means you just do nothing but deconstruct. That is destruction. Uh, that, is what, uh, that is what sin does. It destroys. It deconstructs with no further end. Jesus goes on to say, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Bible is all about restoration, re-verbs, not de-verbs. Uh, I love that about Christ, and I love that, that he can redeem any of that trauma, any of that suffering. Not now. We're not doing prosperity gospel, even emotionally or relationally. But if you have resurrection in mind, if you understand the point of all of this to get to the new heavens and new earth where Christ will wipe away every tear, that will ultimately make it worth it. And we can begin to feel that reality as we're thinking that reality, uh, even if we don't feel it uh, all the way. Uh, we just have to trust in Christ, the author of our story. Uh, we have plenty of more show notes about this in our, uh, in our show notes for this episode. Uh, we actually did an episode about, I guess we didn't use the word, as I remember, Zach, about deconstruction, but we did ask that question about folks who felt they needed to walk away from the faith and asked about the role of imagination there. We will try to link that in our show notes. Uh, we also had a three-part series, or was it four parts? I think it was honorary four parts because of the suffering episode about epic resurrection. Uh, we'll try to get that link in there as well. Uh, but more importantly, I guess, Lonnie, um, where can people find more of your story, uh, keeping track of the Obsidian Butterfly and any of the other works that you have coming up? Uh, what are some links that people can use to check that out? Absolutely. Um, I'm really active on Instagram. And so if you follow me, just at Lonnie Forbes, L-A-N-I-F-O-R-B-E-S. Um, I try to give regular updates on just kind of what's going on with my life, my writing. Um, I like to give writing tips and and just discuss life and and suffering. And like I said, I, I feel like my my mission is to to be a light in the darkness, and that's kind of my my theme and of my Instagram. And so, um, if you want to follow me there, I, I love to interact with my readers on Instagram. And then my website is just LonnieForbes.com. Um, I have a little blog that I try to do big updates on the blog. Um, and then you can sign up for my newsletter, which I still need to, to, to work on. Um, I have a, a newsletter list, but I'm not very good at sending out my newsletter, but I'm working on hopefully getting better at that. So, <laughs> Well, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a really fascinating conversation. I, I loved it. Thank you. I'm really glad I got to be here. Thank you so much. Stephen, that was a really fascinating episode. I, I didn't think we would go to all the deconstruction narratives that are just assaulting the church right now, but but see how Lonnie, through her stories and just through her own journey, is showing a better way forward. I was really encouraged by everything she had to say. I mean, we follow a God who says, I'm making all things new. And that certainly has seemed to be the case in her own life uh, and in the characters she writes about. So um, I hope this has been an encouragement to you, our listener. And we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts about it and uh, send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com what you think about this. Or if you've read one of Lonnie's books, we'd love to hear what that spoke to you. Let's go to our comp station and see the notes we've got from previous episodes. On Facebook, Ashley replied to episode 74, which was about the Ark Encounter. And Ashley says, quote, I get why you'd want to build an Ark, a relic from an awesome story of God's miraculous deliverance. But why would you want to build a relic of man's foolishness that God punished? It's like wanting to rebuild Sodom or that tower Jesus talked about that killed everyone, end quote. <laughs> and my response is because this tower is going to have a dark ride inside. Okay. Hashtag race mountain. And that makes all the difference. Uh, I love the plans for using the Tower of Babel as an illustration of the reasons why God spread humanity across the world and where we get all of our differences and all of our different cultures. Uh, that is intrinsic in the story of Genesis 11, and I think represents, oh, oddly enough, here it is again, a proper idea of reconstruction. You are literally reconstructing a Tower of Babel replica, an imaginative construct of what it may have looked like, uh, rather than deconstructing the tower. You may need to deconstruct something. You may need to knock some stuff down that doesn't belong there anymore before you reconstruct something bigger and better and on the same foundation of God's word. 
Yeah, and I love what Answers in Genesis said about this tower is that they really want to show the the common origin of all human cultures. You know, and it's just interesting that this is right next to the ark. It's like, hey, we we have uh, the reason we have the um, tower is because we have the ark before that. In that, all these different languages and cultures they all ultimately trace back to Noah and his family. And so, as different as we all think we are, we have actually quite a bit more in common. And uh, and genetically as well, and I, I think their exhibits going to even go into that and in, into the um, the genetics of you know human cultures and and how you know we're being told today we're all so different and so polarized and and so at war with one another. Well, it's like may, maybe we're not, and maybe the Bible has a better solution to all of the division we see in the world. Amen. As you can imagine, our episode with Tim Chafee got plenty of feedback, including a user named Valiant Ginger, who on Instagram also replied to that episode about the Ark Encounter, saying, This is one of the things about the Ark Encounter that really stuck out to me. My dad raised us on a pretty literal view of Genesis, because if you compromise the beginning, why should you believe anything that came after? So I didn't have the more juvenile depictions of the Ark around me. When I saw just how large that exhibit was, it was staggering. I didn't realize exactly how widespread the cutesy version of the story was. I was somewhat familiar myself uh, with the cutesy versions of the stories, but I think I was also blessed to be exposed to more mature uh, imaginative versions of the flood narrative uh, going back to childhood. I think that's another illustration of the need to get rid of stuff that doesn't align with God's word. Some of that cutesy version of Christianity, some of the uber cleaned up version Noah on the ark and the animals and the little sheep and the giraffes and the elephants and never any dinosaurs, by the way. There were almost certainly <laughs> dinosaurs on Noah's ark, as Answers in Genesis rightly portrays. Uh, this was a terrifying narrative, and it needs to be terrifying. You need to understand through the flood, there it is again, that theme of sacrifice is that if you sin, something has to die. And in that case, as Genesis 6 through 9 tells us, the sin in that world had reached such a terrible level that God had, in a sense, no choice. In order to vindicate his own righteousness, he had to cleanse the earth, but he did not destroy everything. He did not deconstruct everything. He wiped the surface. He got rid of everything that wasn't needed, that did not glorify him. All of these human rebellious societies, who knows what kinds of stuff they were into, uh, along with, unfortunately, all the cultures and the creative works that they had built, but he preserved their memory and he preserved the lineage of humans and the creatures and all of the animals whom he loved by using the ark. Uh, and then once the flood water subsided, you get people reconstructing, rebuilding. And of course, that society will also eventually be destroyed in another way by fire. But again, it is God wasting the surface. He's not nuking the entire planet. God does not deconstruct his entire creation. Uh, he wipes it all out takes it down to the base elements, and then someday he will, as you said, Zach, make all things new. Jesus is into reconstruction. We should be also. You know, Stephen, I'm so struck by that term uh, Valiant Ginger used about the cutesy version of the Ark. And, oh yeah, we, we totally have cutesy little <laughs> kids' toys of the Ark where you can fit about three or four different little animal figurines in these little toy versions of the ark. And it just, it just struck me for a minute. You know, there is an enterprising opportunity for a savvy, savvy listener out there to create a two scale toy version of the ark with little animals and, and people that go in it. Uh, that would be something I would be really interested in as, as a dad with kids, like with young kids, like I would love for them to see the actual scale of this ark. I wonder if Answers in Genesis has that or if something like that exists out there. But again, to you, our listener, we'd, we'd love to hear more of your thoughts about this or about uh, what Lonnie shared with us. So send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. You can also find us on the socials by searching for Lorehaven. It's Lorehaven Mag on Facebook and Instagram and at Lorehaven on Twitter. Next on Fantastical Truth, we mentioned earlier that Lonnie's a member of the Romance Writers of America. Interestingly enough, we just had a story about that at Lorehaven written by Mike Duran, in which a Christian historical romance novel was canceled or at least removed from their Vivian Awards. That story got a lot of feedback, and we're going to explore any updates to that story and the ideas of cancellation as applied to fiction. Previously, it seems that Christians were trying to expect clean fiction, but now it seems that the tables have turned. Meanwhile, as you are deconstructing, as you are evaluating what the Bible says about blood and sacrifice, make sure 
that you are not correcting these issues with sentimentalism. It ought to be the gospel that helps us rebuild on the foundation of God's word, always pointing to Jesus, who does not deconstruct us without also reconstructing us and his world to glorify him as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.